you would, continue to stand with me and take out your Bibles. The reading will come from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Sends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This morning's title is King Triumphant, Priest Eternal, The Reason. For the season. Before we hear from the Lord this morning, let's go to Him in prayer as a very dependent people. Heavenly Father, we ask again, now by presence of your Spirit, by His power, that you'd enable me to declare this, your glorious truth, to these, your dear people that they might be sanctified by way of this truth, and that those who are yet at enmity with you will be brought to saving faith this day. For the glory of Christ's name we pray. Amen. The late, great James Boyce once wrote, I quote, The Christmas story evokes many touching images. Halos, fresh hay, shepherds carrying newborn lambs and young motherhood all bring tears to the eyes of Christmastime churchgoers. But the Christmas story is more than sentimental. It is powerful. It deals with real people. It involves pain. It is one of the most strikingly unusual stories in all of history. And its main emphasis is not on Jesus' infancy, but on his deity and why deity took the form of an infant. End of quote. There is an exhortation that sums up in a masterful way the path to Christian maturity. It comes from the Apostle Peter, urging Christians to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, Psalm 110 um, will greatly assist us in the pursuit of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. A psalm that can and will, for those who have ears to hear, transform your whole perspective of who Christ is, of his life, of his work, of his victory, 
and of his kingdom. In other words, why he became incarnate. One writer puts it like this. Few psalms pack away so much depth of truth and insight as does this gem of seven verses. Psalm 110. The book of Psalms. The Psalter was Israel's hymnal. And therefore, it is what Jesus sang growing up. He knew these songs, he loved these songs, and as we shall see during his public ministry, he applies this psalm to himself. A very important prophecy concerning God's promised Messiah. Messiah comes from a word that means to anoint. It comes to us as the Christ, the royal anointed one. And in the Old Testament, kings, priests, and prophets were anointed with oil as a symbol of God's choice. And of the Holy Spirit who enabled them to fulfill their office. Prophets, priests, and kings. And thus the idea of anointing came to be concentrated in this great promised coming one, Yahweh's Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. The anointed one of God par excellence, the preeminent one, the Christ, fulfilling three, three main offices of the old covenant, as I said already, prophet, priest, and king, a prophet greater than Moses, a priest greater than Levi. A king greater than David, the author of Psalm 110. This morning we will see two of those three themes or offices fulfilled. They're covered here in Psalm 110. That is the one who comes as king and priest. King and priest. To provide his people victory and redemption from their sins. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament text found in the New Testament. It's quoted directly 10 times and is alluded to 18 more times. Psalm 110. Yet every book of the Bible, beloved, every book of the Bible leads us to the Lord Jesus Christ. However obscure that book may be, it leads us to Christ. The wisdom that is found in the word of God is the wisdom that leads us to the word made flesh. He alone fulfills God's plan to redeem a people for himself, which means the hermeneutical key to understanding the Old Testament. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. The hermeneutical key to unpacking the Old Testament is not the nation of Israel. It's not the land of Israel. It's God's true Israelite, the only faithful covenant-keeping Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the hermeneutical key to unfold the Old Testament. On the day of his resurrection, in Luke 24, 
the Lord Jesus Christ came alongside um, two very troubled disciples on the road to Emmaus, talking among themselves about all that had happened in the last three days. Jesus approached them. But we're told that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He says, what is it you're so troubled about? He said, are you the only one in Jerusalem that does not know all those things that have happened with regard to this one, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus said, what things? (laughs) Jesus the Nazarene, we had hoped, would redeem Israel. He was delivered over. He was condemned. He was crucified. Jesus responds, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory, said Jesus, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. Later that evening, Jesus entered into a room filled with his disciples who were terrified. They were in hiding. He said, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then we read, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Psalm 110 is profoundly Christocentric. It tells us of the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is so needed today. Again, this is so needed today because even serious Christians are so fearful today. They see the rise of Islam. I'll call it the Islamic invasion of America. Forms of secularism, people swearing their allegiance to the state, rejecting Christ, accusing Christians of being bigots and haters. Fearing that these things will overtake and destroy the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, friends, this psalm, Psalm 110, will set your heart and mind at ease through the vehicle of fulfilled prophecy. The text will outline it as follows. You could outline it a number of ways, as I have in the past. This morning, first, as Lord... Jesus Christ is exalted over all. As Lord, Jesus Christ is exalted over all. Secondly, as King, Jesus Christ is and will be victorious over all. And thirdly, Jesus Christ as priest is mediator for all. That is, for all of his redeemed. So let's look at it. Number one is, Lord, Jesus Christ is exalted over all. Verse one, 
the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is penned by King David by way of divine inspiration a thousand years before Christ came to earth. And this psalm is an exercise in divine eavesdropping. We're allowed by the Holy Spirit to listen to a divine conversation as the persons of the Godhead converse. Very similar to Psalm 2. The Lord said to my Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh said to Adonai, the Father said to the Son, the first person of the Trinity said to the second person of the Trinity, sit at my right hand. Now, this conversation prophesied a thousand years before Christ would not be fulfilled until the ascension of Christ. Fulfilled at the ascension of Christ. That is, after his life, after his earthly ministry, after his death and resurrection, as Christ ascends physically into the heavenly courts, ascending as he did before the, the eyes of the disciples into a cloud of glory, in Acts 1 we read, and he was taken up into a cloud out of their sight. So question, what happened when Jesus ascended on the other side of that glory cloud into heaven? The New Testament writers, when describing what happened to the Lord immediately upon his ascension, rely almost entirely on Psalm 100. Peter did. We read from it this morning in Acts 2, his sermon at Pentecost. See, th this is the greeting that the Father gives to his Son upon his victorious incarnate ascension. His physical body ascended into heaven, his physical human body. And there the Lord said to my Lord, writes David, sit at my right hand. Sit. Why? Because your work is done. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Sit down, my son. To be seated also implies rule, authority, dignity, and dominion. Dominion. This is also prophesied by Daniel. Look at it, Daniel chapter 7. I love this book, as you know. I love these verses. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Not coming to earth, this is not the second coming, but coming into clouds of glory. And he came up to the ancient of days, that is God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Friends, that, that's fulfilled. Ephesians 1, 
verse 19. Speaking of the, uh, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe, notice, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. He brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So sit at my right hand, friends, is not an invitation to take a future earthly throne in a physical temple in Jerusalem. This is a present reality. This is now. And has been reigning and ruling ever since that glorious ascension. Invested with all authority and power to rule in the name of Yahweh over the nations as the incarnate of the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, writes David, sit in my right hand. Place of authority. Place of strength. Now with these things in mind, turn to Matthew 22. Beginning in verse 41. Now, context. The Pharisees, when they heard Jesus silence the Sadducees, remember they're always trying to paint Jesus into a corner, trying to trick him. They were always made to look like fools, absolute fools. So when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. Notice verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. Amen. <laughs> so here, seeking to corner the one in whom all wisdom resides. What, what, what a, you, you have to be a fool. People do it to this day. They try to reshape God into their image. So Jesus cites Psalm 110, and he uses it as a riddle. He stumps his enemies by asking them a simple interpretive question about Psalm 110. Okay, and it turns out, by the way, you can only answer the question if you understand this. Jesus is both God and man. Truly God, truly man. If you don't understand the two natures of Jesus Christ, what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union of our Lord, that he's truly God, truly man, you cannot solve the riddle. Here's the setup. Whose son, whose descendant, is the Christ? When they respond, David, with authority... Jesus snaps the trap. How can the Messiah 
be David's son and David's Lord? Answer, Psalm 110, verse 1. He is David's Lord because Jesus is God, incarnate. He's both God and man, the God man. Now, remember, David had it in his heart to build a house for God, to build a temple. But the Lord sent his prophet saying, no, David, uh, the building of a house for me will be the doing of your son, that is his physical offspring, Solomon. But then comes the great announcement. Though I'm not allowing you to build me a house, I'm going to build you one, David. A dynasty. A dynasty. An everlasting kingship from one of your offspring. From your loins. That is, from David's own seed, beloved, from David's own seed would arise the great promised one, the seed of Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the servant of Yahweh, the Christ, God's own son, Psalm 2. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Friends, whatever men or women may say or think about Christ, the Father has paid the Son the supreme compliment. The highest seat of authority. Today, there are billions of people who hate the name of Christ, seeking to lower him. Seeking to lower him to the status of a mere man, or perhaps a great teacher, perhaps the best teacher that's ever lived, but certainly not the only way to God. There's only one opinion that matters. It's the one who said, sit at my right hand. The place of highest honor. You know, Jesus never intended for men to crown him as king. Do we realize this, beloved? His becoming Lord incarnate was never conditioned upon the choices of human will. That mattered not to him. You know, to be made Lord by way of popular vote. Remember in John 6, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000? The people were watching Jesus. They started to connect the dots. Signs miracles, wonders, and those dots began to take the shape of a crown. The text tells us that Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. It was the wrong kind of kingship that they were after. Had Jesus been seeking to rule by popular acclaim or democratic election, it was all within reach on that day. But he departs. He heads for the hills. Because the Son of God was not looking for the approval of men to declare him as Lord. Amen? 
the night before his death, in what we know as the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ, prayed these words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son might glorify you. I glorified you on the earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. Therefore, the Father said, sit down. Amen? And now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is Lord, is exalted over all. Point two, as king, Jesus Christ is and will be victorious over all. Now, friends, for for those of you who worry and fear as the world seems to be spinning out of control, anybody, at least in your thinking, notice, look at the words. Sit at my right hand, verse 2, until. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch out your strong scepter from Zion, that is heavenly Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Friends, do you hear any pessimism there? No. None whatsoever. That is all of Christ's enemies. Islam, enemy. Buddhism, enemy. New Age, enemy. Secular humanism, enemy. They're all under his feet. So you have a scepter, which is a staff representing the authority of a king and his right to rule. Christ rules. Rule, he says, in the midst of your enemies. Friends, Jesus Christ has been ruling for 2,000 years by providential and spiritual force. Can we use that word today in America? Force? Force. That is the affairs of nations, of peoples, and events, including COVID-19. And events, including COVID-19. And beloved, because a good and glorious and victorious king is on the throne, we need not be slaves of fear. I've never seen people so easily controlled than I have in the last nine, ten months. Walking around like robots. Stay on your mark. Going to Home Depot, six inches off the mark, and somebody calls me a murderer. If I don't put my mask on soon enough when when I get out of my car, you know, people are out of your minds. This is nothing new, by the way. C.S. Lewis, in 1948, wrote an essay entitled, Living in an Atomic Age. Now, let me say this. Let me preface what I'm going to read with this statement so that I'm not misinterpreted. Okay, while necessary COVID-19 precautions are necessary, they should be taken. I said necessary, not extreme. 
C.S. Lewis's words written 72 years ago ring with great relevance for us today. You ready? 1948. Lewis writes, quote, In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. Insert coronavirus. How are we to live in an atomic age? Insert corona age. I am tempted to reply, writes Lewis, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in the Viking Age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed, as you already are living in an age of cancer. An age of paralysis. An age of air raids. An age of railway accidents. An age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation, writes Lewis. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic age was invented. Insert before the spread of coronavirus. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, insert coronavirus, let that bomb, coronavirus, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. Insert coronavirus. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. End of quote. Amen, Lewis. Because a God glorious and victorious sits on the throne, we need not be slaves to fear. Amen. Moving along. While the king spreads his kingdom by providential and spiritual force, pressing his enemies under his feet, that's the idea of a king taking his enemy and laying his foot upon his throat. While he does that, at the same time, he's conquering the hearts, the hearts of his elect. Verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely on the day of your power. In holy splendor, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Notice he's given a people. It's not a confused crowd, but a separate, distinct community of the redeemed. Notice a willing people, a willing people whose rebellious wills have been transformed to serve Christ, to do his bidding. You know, people talk about, you know, everyone has free will to worship Jesus. Guess what? Newsflash. Your will's not free in your fallen condition to serve Christ. Your will is subject to your nature, which is a sin nature. 
That's at enmity with God. God in his grace sets the will free when he saves people, when he regenerates people to willfully serve him. Classic example, Acts 9, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is but one example of those who hated the name of Jesus Christ. Hated, but were made willing to serve the king. Saul was a passionate opponent of Jesus Christ. We read in the text that he was breathing out threats and murder against any who served Jesus. Armed with official permission to imprison Christians, filled with fanatical hatred for the church of Jesus Christ, suddenly, in an instant, in a moment, his mind and his heart, they were transformed. He was made willing under the power of Christ. Your people will volunteer freely on the day of your power. So verse 3 is a picture of a renewed people, born of God, by his power, according to his grace. In other words, his people willingly embrace his kingship. Willingly, because their wills have been transformed. They love his reign because his reign is their freedom. You're free in Christ. His reign is their happiness. His reign is their humility. His reign is their horizon. His reign is their hope. The only true hope we have, the reign and rule of Jesus Christ, the King, King of kings, Lord of lords. So they freely give themselves to Christ because the Holy Spirit subdues their hearts with grace, gospel grace. So this is a triumph of God's grace in the hearts of men and women clothing them in the righteous robes of Christ, in holy splendor. Beautiful. And because we're in Christ, friends, our flesh, your flesh, will be glorified. One day, you will be glorified, for we are in the one who is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We're in him. We will be be like him. So there then is the kingly reign of Christ, victorious over all. So here then in verse 4, there's a surprising shift, right? So we move from the Lord exalted over all to the triumphal king, victorious over all, to, number three, an eternal priest. Jesus Christ, mediator for all. Mediator for all his Redeemed. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, the Father says to the Son. (laughs) Now, Old Covenant priests, including those of the clan of Aaron, served as authorized agents for sinners over a brief period of time, usually 20 years, terminated, of course, by death, right? The Levitical line. Of priests. But Jesus will always be our priest, our great high priest. Notice, the Father has sworn an oath to this effect. It's forever. Forever. 
you are a priest forever. Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 23. Now, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Pretty simple, yeah. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So here is our rightful representative. Every day of our lives, he represents you and will right into glory. You can say, whew, to that. You do not want to represent yourself. A priest forever, notice, notice the order of the priesthood. It's according to Melchizedek, not according to Aaron. This is a name that takes us back to the time of Abraham, before the Mosaic law, in other words, okay? Before the Mosaic law, we, we, we go to Abraham, who, remember, succeeded in rescuing his nephew Lot from a confederacy of kings, who had attacked Sodom and Gomorrah, they took all the loot and lot with them. Abraham gathers his men, and he goes, and they conquer. While he returns, he's met by one Melchizedek, identified as the priest of the Most High God, and he meets Abraham with bread and wine. He blesses Abraham, and Abraham, in response, gives him a tithe of the spoils from the battle, a tenth of his possessions. And again, this is long before the Mosaic Law. Now, Melchizedek is also referred to to by the title of, of the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the king of Salem, king of Shalom, okay, where Jerusalem will be. So Abraham, the father of nations, the father of the faithful, that is the father of all true believers, is paying tithes to Melchizedek and receiving blessing from him. He's not blessing Melchizedek. Melchizedek is blessing him. The greater always blesses the lesser. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, the father of the faith. Now remember, under the old covenant, the, 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 the work of a priest was twofold. He would represent the people before God and represent God before the people because the people by themselves could not represent themselves before a holy, righteous God. They needed a mediator. A mediator. The priests serve that purpose. Under the new covenant, we have a new and better eternal mediator, Jesus Christ, the one who represents us to the Father and the Father to us forever. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's the God-man, Christ Jesus. Therefore, he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him because he's the only mediator. The great high priest. Now, an unbelieving Jew, when they hear this, they will immediately object to Jesus being the Christ and holding the title of great high priest because they will argue as follows. 
Jesus of Nazareth does not come from the tribe of Levi. He comes from the tribe of Judah. That's their argument, which is easily solved. Verse 4, notice. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order, not of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek, an order that precedes the Mosaic law, an order that precedes the Levitical line. It precedes, precedes Aaron's line. Abraham is the ancestral father of Levi, so he paid homage to Melchizedek, one who is greater. You see this? See the theology here, beloved? So the Lord swears to my Lord, verse 1, you, my son, are a priest forever. Now, some scholars believe that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd agree with that. Remember in John 8? When Jesus, again, is addressing the Pharisees, he said this, I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. Remember, he said, your father's the devil. They retorted, we have Abraham as our father. Jesus said, well, if Abraham were your father, you'd believe in me. For Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. Well, you're not 50 years old, the Pharisee said. And you've seen Abraham? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, that's Yahweh. So some believe the reference to Abraham seeing his day is a reference to Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek. Jesus as priest, is mediator for all his redeemed forever. Amen? Okay, now notice where the psalm ends. In verses 5 and 6, the risen, ascended, approved Lord Jesus is Lord of the judgment. Now, most people... Christians, when asked, what are three essential truths about Christ in Scripture? Hardly will a one answer, hardly will anyone answer the outpouring of his wrath. Final judgment. After all, Jesus doesn't judge. Now, we've corrected that. What do I always say to that? People say, Jesus doesn't judge. Newsflash, Jesus is the judge. The Father judges no one. He's bestowed all judgment to me, said he. So the scepter that he holds is held with double sovereignty. It's in the hand of the Son, insured by the Father's hand, striking down his enemies, all rulers, all rebels, all nations. And notice the, word, the words here, filled with corpses. Now, that scene is vividly portrayed, if you want some good afternoon reading, in Revelation 19. You can read that this afternoon. Friends, the Bible clearly states with remarkable frequency 
that this is the end to which all of humanity and history is headed, the judgment of the Son of God. Look at Matthew 25. Jesus, he said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed people, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, now notice verse 7a. It expresses the toil of the battle. Verse 7b expresses the reward of undertaking the toil. Okay, now consider this. To understand this in a Christological sense, Jesus had to suffer in order to overcome, amen? What did he drink to the dregs? The full cup of? God's wrath. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, this cup of wrath. If not so, your will be done. We saw in his humanity how troubled he was to have to drink that cup of wrath. But he, he drank it to the dregs. So perhaps this is a picture of Christ's humility and exaltation. Lifting his head in victory. Now that takes us back to the Old Testament. Something that David reminds us of. When he says he will drink from the brook by the way. Now in 1 Samuel 30, remember David prefigures Christ, amen? Okay. In 1 Samuel 30, when David and his men came into Ziklag, they discovered that the Amalekites had burned the city, taken their wives, taken their children captive, and the men wept. Can you, men, can you imagine? Say, we're all warriors. We come into town and our families are gone. The city's been burned. And we get news that the Amalekites did it. So God uses this Egyptian to lead them to the Amalekites. So David takes off with 600 of his men. They get to the brook of Bezor. They drink, they're refreshed, but 200 of them are too tired carry on. They do not have the stamina to go into battle, so they stay behind and watch the baggage, the equipment. David and the 400 get up. They head to the front line to pursue the Amalekites. And what we learn from David the conqueror, okay, again, he prefigures Christ, is this. 1 Samuel 30, verse 16. And there they were, the Amalekites, spread abroad over the land, eating, drinking, and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. The king conquered his enemies. 
You know, I have a fondness for frontliners who go to the front for battle. These men, when they returned, the 400, they said of the 200 that stayed behind, hey, give them their wives and children back, but let them not share in the spoil. David said, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Though they stayed back and walked, watched the equipment and watched the baggage, they're part of the spoil. They're all part of the same team. You need frontliners, amen? You need baggage watchers. You can go look it up yourself for Sam 30. They're all part of the same team. But see, friends, this is a picture of verse 7. Okay, Jesus is pursuing his enemies until they're ultimately defeated with his army, with his kingdom. You have frontliners. You have baggage watchers. The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is on the move, in other words, amen, just like David and his faithful men. So the picture of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is not one of inactivity, but absolute sovereign authority. Jesus said this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, when we hear that, we, we, we oftentimes mistake his words thinking that the church is in defensive mode. We misread that verb, prevail. So it sounds like hell is on the attack. That's not the case. See, see gates of a fortress, gates of a, of, a, of a castle are stationary. They're defensive, not offensive. Do we see this, beloved? Jesus is saying it's not hell and its minions on the move. No, it's Jesus Christ the king and his kingdom people who are on the march. And even the gates of hell cannot hold them back. Frontliners and baggage watchers are all part of the same team. Amen? On the move. So Psalm 110 depicts the Son of God whose head, verse 7, is raised in victory having refreshed himself at the brook. He's lifted his head. He's the conquering king. And here, as prefigured by David, he will track his enemies down, and he will strike them with his wrath. Now, I mentioned Revelation 19. Listen to these words from that chapter. Jesus, the judge who comes stained with the blood of his enemies, to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. There's vivid imagery of tender, meek, and mild Jesus right there. King, priest, conquering ruler. The king who's reigning now, beloved, will come again and reign in a new heaven and a new earth with his people who will reside in glorified bodies, not unlike his. Amen. This glorious hope of Christmas. So, to close, as priest, the sacrificial aspect of that role, of his priestly role, was fully accomplished at his first coming. Now he ever lives to intercede for us, to represent us before the Father. His kingly role is just begun. It's only 2,000 years old. He's building his kingdom, and... He has yet to descend. 
but he will. He will in glory and judgment to bring about destruction of all who stand against him, all who stand against his kingdom, his people, and his gospel. Stand strong, beloved. You don't have the strength in and of yourselves. It's the strength of the residing presence of God, the Holy Spirit, that guides us by way of his glorious word. So the true reason for the season is the resounding message of Psalm 110. The king triumphant is also priest eternal, and we as fallen sinners need a mediator. And young people, there's only one. Don't ever think that you have to try to measure up, to do better, to try harder in order for God to receive you. He only receives you and accepts you in his son, Jesus Christ. Run to him. Flee to him and rest in him. He's your righteousness. You have no righteousness in and of yourself. Moral reform will not save you. Only the righteousness of Christ in your place condemned he stood will save you. Amen, young people? Amen. This is my Lord who seated at the right hand of the Lord, exalted forever. So to recap, take this away. No one else, no one else is both Lord of and offspring of David, but one, Jesus the Christ. Deity, humanity, the root and offspring of David, right? David, the root and offspring. David was created by God. His offspring was Jesus, the conquering king, the descendant that is Yahweh's Messiah, the root and offspring. He's at the same time a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and only Jesus can make all of his enemies the ultimate enemy, which is death, a footstool for his feet. That's why we can say in Christ, you'll never taste what? Death. Right into his presence. No one else will sit in judgment upon the nations and rule over them, but one with a rod of iron, he rules from heavenly Zion. He will come again and conquer ultimately all enemies so that there'll never be rebellion again. There's only one, Jesus Christ. And most importantly, it is Jesus himself who teaches us that only one fulfills Psalm 110. It's him. And he also teaches us that the whole of Scripture, including the Psalms, points to him so that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're an enemy of God today, if you're at enmity with God, in other words, you're not a Christian at this point, I want to give you a fair warning. You'll never win against God. You can try to reshape him and remold him into what you think he ought to be, but you will lose in the end. So flee to Christ now and become a willing servant of this one, the Most High. And may the Spirit of God enable you to see him as he truly is, the King, the Priest, the Lord, who's eternal. May he embrace you, and may you embrace him in response and be saved from the penalty that is due and understand that he took it all. To the end, he drank the cup dry. Come to Christ and believe. 
and you shall be saved. And then you will understand that he rightfully represents you before the Father forevermore. Amen? Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gospel revealed to us in the Old Testament, understanding that your Son fulfills it all. So help us to grow in that knowledge. And may we be, uh, as a grace-filled people, very graceful. Help us this Christmas season to understand these glorious truths with a due degree of understanding for your glory. In our own good, we pray. Amen.